Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm honored to have as our guest, Leah Niehaus. Leah has been a licensed clinical social worker for almost 20 years, primarily working with adolescents, young adults, and their families. She worked at UCLA Neuropsychiatric Hospital as a clinical social worker and has been a private practice psychotherapist in Hermosa Beach for 17 years. Leah has always had a passion for group therapy, going back to her training days, running teen mother groups, gang diversion groups, battered women treatment groups, and groups for survivors of domestic violence. She's been running out patient adolescent girls groups since 2014. She currently has three high school girls groups running and one middle school girls group weekly in her practice. She is a member of the Group Psychotherapy Association of Los Angeles and American Group Psychotherapy Association. She is a local speaker and writer on group therapy, adolescence, and parenting. Today, Leah shares her insights on group therapy. Welcome, Leah. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So this is the first episode we've done about group therapy. And I think you're the best person to have on because I know that you've had such kind of a wide and meaningful history in terms of your professional life working with groups. Yes. I mean, I really love doing groups and, you know, in my background as a social worker, I always had to do groups in my training. And then when I went into my own private practice, it's been about eight years that I've been doing outpatient private practice group therapy. And I just see a ton of benefits. I love doing individual family work and stuff as well, but I think there's something very special about groups. So probably I should probably ask, so what do you see as the benefits of that by itself versus individual therapy? Mm -hmm. I think the difference with group therapy is it requires a different kind of courage and bravery to show up in a room with people you don't know and share your vulnerability and talk about what's really going on and offer yourself up for some support from others. And I think some of the major benefits to group therapy are this idea of universality, which is I'm not alone. Other people share in suffering, even if it's not exactly my kind of suffering, pain is pain. And so the woman across the circle from me might also just really resonate with what I'm saying. And I think that everybody who leaves group therapy feels less alone. And I think that's particularly important. I think another key about group therapy is altruism, which is the flip side of that same coin, which is in group, part of the healing is by providing support to someone else who needs you, whether that might be advice, a pat on the shoulder, just looking at them and smiling or tearing up if they have something moving or whatever. I think that actually a lot of the healing in group therapy is because you're being there and witnessing somebody else's struggle or somebody else's success. I mean, as groups go on for longer, they really are like cheering each other on. They're cheerleaders for each other in their own lives. And so I think being able to do that for others is a wonderful thing. I think that many of the groups also foster a sense of belonging. They build in social skills training without even realizing it for youth and for adults. I mean, 
I think that if we think about connection and relationships as being one of the most healing parts in our own lives, and then you, you put people together, I think that to enhance the way they get along, the way they communicate, the way they can be less self-centered and thinking of others. I think all of that just helps to boost some of the really necessary skills that we know people need. And I think a lot of people are more comfortable in individual therapy, just you and a therapist, but it doesn't necessarily challenge some of the skills that are getting in their way in their own life. If that makes sense. Yeah. I have a few thoughts. One is that I'm wondering, so what is the role of you as the facilitator, as Mm -hmm. the therapist? And then the other thought that came to my mind is how is this different than just a group of friends meeting together and supporting one another? Mm -hmm. Good questions. I'm going to answer the second one first, which I think we all have many natural groups in our lives, family groups, you know, girlfriend groups, coworker groups, all of these different wonderful groups. What I would say is the people who often end up in group therapy are the ones who have less of those opportunities in life Mm -hmm. for whatever reason. Maybe they're on the autism spectrum and this is really hard for them. Maybe their family of origin is really, really dysfunctional and they can't be there safely. You know, so there's a whole lot of, I would say group therapy is especially beneficial for someone who's more lost and doesn't feel like they have as many natural groupings in their life. So this provides kind of, a corrective family experience. It can be like a social peer group experience that is really lacking. I think many of us fulfill our needs for this kind of connection in natural ways, mommy and me groups or book clubs or church groups or whatever. And so I think, but there are people who that doesn't fit for them for whatever reason. And so sometimes this is a nice way to do it. Maybe thinking about adolescents, some of those groups, it comes with dysfunctional dynamics sometimes. And I wonder if this is more of a corrective experience. Mm -hmm. It is because we have in group, the group kind of becomes a small microcosm of high school. If I'm working with high school girls, or if you're working with different kinds of groups that can replicate like what a family feels like in some ways. And it is a corrective experience because we have challenges and arguments in group, but that's part of the role of facilitator. If there's a rupture in the group, how do we repair it? How can I model for them how to communicate about something? I mean, I've had things in my high school groups where, you know, I have a diverse group of kids and somebody says something racist or insensitive in some way, not really intending to hurt, but like ignorant or immature or whatever. Well, we have, we kind of pick that apart. And my role is to try to help the one who was upset or offended communicate in a way the person who said the harmful thing you know, communicate in a way they can hear each other and actually have that rupture kind of bring them closer. And so I think sometimes like the role of the group leader, it's, it's interesting. I find I wear many hats, you know, some nights I'm the parent for sure, especially I run a high school girls group. So often I think I'm like a limit setter or a parent or the voice of reason in some way, but I also just am facilitating conversation. I'm trying to foster belonging in the group. I'm trying to help each person find their voice a bit and encourage the really quiet ones to speak out. I try to, part of the job is also fostering a group identity because what I'll say is we'll have something really hard that comes up in group and I'll put it back on the girls and I'll say, girls, that was really hard to listen to. That was really hard to hear. 
how can the group show some support to her right now? Or what could the group say to her? So I'm not like necessarily always putting somebody on the spot, but like as a group, I want them to internalize the group outside of group because I want them to walk into the world and actually when they feel really insecure, when they feel really like doubtful about themselves and awkward for them to remember, they actually have some skills and that their people in their group actually really believe in them. Just like we would do that in individual therapy, internalizing kind of the voice of therapists at times, like, and helping them get clear on themselves, clear on being able to communicate hard things. So, and I, I think sometimes I'm like, Sometimes there's some psychoed that we're doing in groups. I run process groups. So I often have like a little idea of a theme or agenda in my mind, but the best groups are when I never get to that, because that means for 90 minutes, those people had a lot to talk about with each other. And so I think depending on which kind of age level you're working with, there's certain things that are always going to be useful topics, you know, that I can throw in there or sometimes we'll listen to music and talk about the lyrics or sometimes we'll watch a clip from a Ted talk or, you know, if it's a night where there's not as much going on with everybody, then I'll pull something like that in. So there's psychoed, there's support. There's, I think we challenge group members at times when somebody's making really poor decisions, the group members are all over them. And it's so much more effective than if I, myself, Leah as a therapist who they perceive as like a parent actually say something. But if their group members say, oh my gosh, you should never let them treat you like that. It just makes a whole lot of difference. Right. Right. And I think it's actually important to talk about, I mean, you do mainly adolescents and high school groups. It's an obvious difference because of age, but what do you see the difference between being a facilitator for an adult group versus a group for minors or teenagers? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in my history, I have run a lot of adult groups. Um, I've batterers, treatment groups, parenting groups, different, you know, domestic violence victims groups. And it's all, it actually feels very similar, even though the people are just older and bigger and wiser, you know what I mean? So the dynamics are the same. I would say, you know, any high risk kind of population that you might be working with, I think I guess I'm trying to say like, I sometimes feel more worry when I'm working with my adolescent groups, just because I think whenever we work with adolescents, you know, we're responsible for someone or we're part, we feel kind of partly responsible for someone who's younger, who could potentially get themselves in some kind of trouble when they're only 16 or whatever, as opposed to working with someone who's 30 and has more autonomy and, you know, independence and things like that. But the dynamics I think are the same. I think what I see is adult groups tend to be task oriented. So like a grief group, a bereavement group, or a survivors of suicide group, or a cancer support group. And those are all really beneficial. And obviously that therapist would be meeting them with whatever the issue is. And I do think of course, in those kind of adult groups, the really friendships and like close relationships come from the people within that group because they're bonding over something very tough. So that's not different than the adolescents. I say with the adolescents, there are clinicians who do more of a task oriented group. So maybe that's psychoeducational, maybe that's a strict CBT group for kids with anxiety. Maybe that's a DBT group. And I think those all have 
you know, a wonderful place. It depends on the kind of agency you work in. Often those are like time limited, like six weeks of DBT, blah, blah, blah. And they're really focusing on the curriculum. And we have some in our community that I like to refer to sometimes, like if somebody wants to be done with my group or really just needs like some specific skills, because the way I tend to run my groups are these open-ended process groups. And for me, that just works. It just fits with my personality. I think part of running group therapy is it really has to be something that comes natural to the clinician and part of their personality and their style. So for me to be able to walk in and know I can wing it with them for 90 minutes without a curriculum and that actually that's really healing for them. That's what I like to do, but other people feel comforted if they have, like they know they're going to go over these skills. And so I have to get to the skills in kind of a roundabout way. So, so I think that there's different kinds of groups. And I think not a ton of differences between running adult groups and adolescent groups, especially older adolescent groups. My other question is, I could imagine maybe a listener, someone thinking about group therapy, they're like, I don't want to tell all these people, all these strangers, these secrets about myself. I'm worried. I mean, how do I not know that they're going to share it with somebody else? And so how do you kind of approach that, those concerns? Mm -hmm. I would say that's definitely the number one concern. The number one concern is how am I going to do this in front of strangers? And also, am I going to know someone in the group? Is it possible I'm going to walk into the door the first time and recognize someone? So I always do a thorough intake process. You know, usually I've talked to the person on the phone or their parent. And then if it seems like a good fit on the phone, I'll schedule them for an intake. I talk to any collaterals. Many people have an individual therapist and then also a group therapist. So I'm connecting with the team who's working with this person And we talk about all this stuff in the intake and really in all my years of doing groups, they do sign a group confidentiality agreement. And really that's the one rule in group, which is what we talk about in the room stays in the room. You know, if you want to talk anecdotally with a friend or somebody brought this kind of thing up or whatever, it's, I mean, people do that. And I think that's okay. As long as you don't attach it to a name and a face or a picture or, you know, things like that, as long as their confidentiality remains intact. And I've never had a breach because everybody there feels like this is sacred in here. Like we don't mess with this. This is, we know that we would never do that. So I would say that part usually is never a problem. I think the part about opening up and how am I going to share in front of others? I always give them time and space. And I say, it is totally fine. I had a new girl start this week, actually in my group. And I always tell them, you want to make sure you feel comfortable with these people before you start opening up too much. So I encourage you to kind of take it in. You can be quieter. You can participate as much or as little as you feel like you want to these first sessions. You can see, and I want you to determine if you trust them before you launch into whatever may have brought you here, because we don't want them to kind of come in and unload their soul with people they don't really know. That's not safe. And actually, sometimes our clients, as we know, they have trouble with those boundaries. They don't know who to tell and who's safe. And they've actually had a lot of their boundaries violated over their life. So I think telling them and actually encouraging them to hold themselves in and contain a little bit, take it in before opening up is a safe thing for them. Hmm. How many groups do you have going at once? (laughs) Well, for me right now, I'm just running one high school girls group. There was a time when I had one high school girls group and I was running one middle school girls group in addition to my other clients. And it was just, it was a lot because the energy of 
containing and, and planning and preparing the space for like seven or eight people is a lot, plus the paperwork and the intakes and things that go along with it. So, but I love groups so much that I'm a supervisor and I have three associates in my office collecting their clinical hours. So each of them runs a group too. So four nights a week, we have groups in my office and two of my associates run high school girls groups. So we have three of those. And then we have one middle school girls group and we'd love to do boys and different things. These are what we get the calls for is kind of what we're known for. So, yeah. And I mean, I amazing work that you do. I mean, I, I think that for, especially that kind of tender period of middle school and adolescence, Mm -hmm. how helpful just to kind of learn emotional cues and interactions with people in kind of a controlled setting could be so helpful for just someone's emotional development. Mm -hmm. Well, because they're really forming their identity in the context of their peers at that age. And if you think about how important that is, and then you think about what it's been like in COVID for these kids who essentially many really, for whatever reasons, had to be pretty COVID scared and we're in LA. And, you know, I just think they have really been not as engaged with their peers. And that is how they develop and grow and become the adults that they end up becoming. So I think it became even more important during COVID. And we kind of immediately, I figured out how to do a group online and we did that and they hated it. We did it for as long as we could. And then, you know, we got really creative. Like I was willing and I knew they needed it. So we would meet outside We met outside in my work courtyard with no privacy and we brought blankets and I had candles and we sat outside and I felt like I was cold for months because (laughs) we were seeing a lot of our clients outside at that point on my balcony and then in this courtyard and, and doing these groups at night. But you know what? It helped get them through. And then as soon as we could, we, people were vaccinated. We started moving inside to my office and they liked the privacy of that again, but it certainly is a way they they need each other to figure out, oh yeah, I'm kind of like this. Like I like this kind of music or maybe I'm kind of a band kid or maybe I'm kind of a jock or my groups are very, they're diverse. Meaning, I mean, I'll like pick an age group, like high school girls, but I kind of like a variety of kids. I kind of liken it to like breakfast club. I get like the prom girl cheerleader type with the nerd, with the acting out. And it's like this group of unlikely characters that you wouldn't think they necessarily would all attach, but it's really so cool because they do. And, you know, we had a few launch off to colleges here and one of my favorite kids, and she was this Asperger's girl and she is in a sorority in college. And just, I'm telling you, it wouldn't have been possible had she not been in the group for three years. And it just sustained her through high school, you know, where she had such a hard time. And so it's really neat to kind of see them blossom, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like really important work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you enlightening us about group and what it is and what it looks like. I'll make sure your information is on the podcast description. One question I have is how does someone even find a group? I know they're really hard to find. They are hard to find. They often are in places like hospitals, schools, residential treatment centers, you know, the AANA model, of course, uses groups, but outpatient private practice groups are harder to find. There is a thing online called the group list. A person in LA kind of lists all the groups. And then 
I'm also part of organizations like in Los Angeles, it's called G Paula Group Psychotherapy Association of LA. And so they have a listing of all the groups, but you could Google it and see what comes up. You know, I mean, now it's getting so much easier. And I think one of the benefits too is groups are more affordable. So for people who it's a lot to maybe consider paying for an individual session every week, group could be an easier thing for them to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Mm-hmm. We didn't, we forgot to bring that up too. Yeah. No, but that becomes important to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what we'll do is let's make sure those, all the resources links are on the podcast description. Mm-hmm. So the listener can, at least if they're in LA, think about different options in Los Angeles and kind of go from there. Any parting words for the listener? No, I think if it's something you've been curious about and this piqued your interest, go for it. I think it's really, it's really a cool thing. And I think if you're a clinician listening to this and you've thought about doing it and you're scared, I also say go for it and take the leap. We need more of it. And, you know, I'm happy to consult with someone, but I think that it's my favorite day of the week when I know it's my group night, you know, so that's really fun. Well, thanks for being on. And I'm excited for this to come out and for people to learn a bit more about this, this topic. Thank you. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.